you will please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We'll be looking at the second half of this chapter uh, as it concerns the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a helper. We need a helper in this life because we can't do it alone. And so before we look at this text and what it tells us about the Holy Spirit, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for help with it. Lord Jesus, you saw fit to teach us about the helper, the counselor that you would send for us. And so help us to learn from you concerning our helper, concerning the one who's here with us even now to open up your word, to open up our hearts and our minds, our ears, that we might hear and understand and learn, that we might be able to obey you more and bring glory to you more, to sing your kingdom come in this community. So help us to do that. Convict us of our sin where it lays as an obstacle. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I considered this passage and the fourth being tomorrow and everything that that means, and it made me think about veterans and what they do for us and have done for us and have given for us and where we meet here in the American Legion, which is kind of an advocacy for veterans. So it made me think of advocacy groups in general, how these groups have become a voice for those who are unable to speak for themselves. They can often be a very good thing. If you think about some of the different advocacy groups that are out there, like veterans, for instance, or the ones that protect children or animals, uh, you name it. There's probably an advocacy group for that speaking. A small amount of people who are really good at talking, really good at convincing, that speak for a larger group of people that need help. In the news, we often hear the political side of those groups, and usually when I hear anything political, I want to turn the news off. But it is important what they do for us, what they do for whatever group that they're in. They make sure that good decisions are being made, that those people are being represented well. They stand up for the rights of the individuals involved. And so today, we're going to talk about an advocate or a helper, is what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, who comes after the death of Christ. And for us now, for us now, we haven't known a time that the Holy Spirit wasn't directly interceding on our behalf as believers. If you're a believer here in this room, ever since you became a believer, the Holy Spirit has been with you, in you, interceding on your behalf. But for the disciples that were there in that room, they would have to wait in anticipation of the Spirit's arrival after the ascension of Jesus. And the Spirit's work in the church was immediately evident as you read the book of Acts. And the world will never be the same after that. Jesus calls the Spirit our helper or counselor in other translation, maybe. And the word he uses has special significance, and we're going to spend some time looking at that word. We're also going to consider how the Spirit advocates for the people of God as part of his work here. And how we, as the church, who are in desperate need of a helper, benefit from his arrival. So we'll consider two points in the text today. The spirit that helps us follow our Lord and the spirit that gives us peace. So with that, let's look at the text today, standing together as we read it. John chapter 14, 
verses 15 through 31. John 14, 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him, or because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, your, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you ha would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that you... So that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer walk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. And so let's remember our context. What's going on here? Remember, Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's telling them that as even though he's going away, what is he doing when he goes away? He's going to prepare a place for them. And that they should continue doing the works that they've been called to do. Remember from last week, whatever they ask in order to do those works, Jesus will provide those things, whatever they need. Will Jesus provide us with material possessions if we need them? Absolutely. We know that happens all the time. We've all been the beneficiaries of prayer. We've all prayed and seen things happen because the Lord is good and the Lord takes care of his people. However, the greatest gift that a father can give his children is his presence. And so look with me real quick at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to be traveling around a little bit this morning, so I encourage you to keep your hand there in John 14. Luke chapter 11, 9 through 13, and this is the, the, uh, the Lord Jesus just gave 
his prayer that the disciples should pray. And then here in verse 9, he continues, he says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among, among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The gift is what? The Holy Spirit. Now you may be thinking of a like a similar passage in Matthew 7, very similar wording, where Jesus says these exact same things, but then says, how much more will your Father give good things to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit Himself is the best thing, the best one we can receive. And all believers receive this Holy Spirit. And so what does Jesus say there? I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And this word helper in the Greek is actually important here to understand, because I think the English word helper doesn't really help us any. Uh, The Greek word here is parakletos, which comes from two words, para, Think like paragraph or parachute. Para means close beside, like alongside. And then the other word is kaleo, which means to call out, to to speak out. And so literally the paraclete is one who makes a call because of those who are he is in proximity to, close proximity to. He is able to make judgment calls. Because he is right here next to us on our behalf. Think about that in legal terms. What do we call that person in our language? Well, we call them lawyers most of the time, but what's another term for that? A legal counselor or advocate. This word paraclete in New Testament times was the term for lawyer. One who stands in defense, advocates for another Again, we don't often think of the word counselor much when we think of a lawyer, even though it does get used, or legal counsel. But a legal counselor, what do they do that we can't do? If I need a lawyer, why do I hire one? Because they understand the system. They, uh, they advocate on behalf of their client, who probably isn't as versed in the matters of the courtroom and of the law, so they hire one who knows everything there is to know about that subject. And so when we think of the Holy Spirit being our helper, our paraclete, our counselor, he is one who literally comes beside us and advocates on our behalf because we need a helper as we go through this world. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just think of that statement by itself. It's a reasonable request coming from the Lord of glory himself. He can ask us to do whatever he wants, and he can put whatever command he wants us to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, yes, we love him. However, 
what is our ability to keep his commandments all the time? Well, sometimes it's better than others, but it's not always great. We're incapable of keeping those commandments by ourselves all the times. We are incapable of demonstrating our love for the Lord at all times. And so what do we need? We need one who is able to help us and who will help us. An advocate who can settle this on our behalf. We need a helper. We need a counselor. That is our Holy Spirit. This is why the Spirit came into the world. And we've read these passages before, but I want to, I want to go there again so that we have a, a base. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. And this is the Lord talking about the new covenant that he makes. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What is the fulfillment of this promise? The Holy Spirit coming into the lives of believers is the fulfillment of this promise. Turn with turn to Ezekiel 36. Another passage that I hope that by now you've had emblazoned in your brains, because we read this a lot, because it's a very important passage in Scripture. Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 24, concerning this new covenant, concerning the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord saying, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean on, or I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and, a, and your flesh, or from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And get this, I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and carefully obey, or, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Again, we have this fulfillment of the new covenant promises that he's given us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here's a helper so that you can do that. What does Ephesians 1 tell us concerning the Holy Spirit? That he is our guarantee that Jesus is coming back and that he will keep his promises. He is our seal. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, he is our seal that, the, that indeed the Lord Jesus is coming back to get us. He is preparing a place for us and he's coming back to take us there. That is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. And so now let's look at this text that the Spirit helps us follow 
the Lord. What does Jesus say? He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Talking about after his resurrection. What does it mean to leave them as orphans? Think about all the children in the world that are orphans. Do they have an advocate? Probably not. Do they have, did their parent, were their parents able to provide for them before they left? Probably not. And so Jesus is telling us, I'm not going to leave you completely unprovided for. I'm not going to leave you completely in the dark. You're not going to be left to wander around wondering what you should do. You're not going to have to fend for yourself when I go away because I'm going to see to it that you are taken care of. Then he goes on, he says, the world will not see me, but you will see me. Again, dividing this idea of belief and unbelief that we've talked so much about. We don't see the Lord now visibly, if you think about it, but he says we will see him. So what does that mean? John Calvin puts it this way, that we will see him through the eyes of faith. I think that's an interesting way to put that. What does that mean? Concerning our Lord Jesus, do we know where he is? He's at the right hand of the Father. Do we know that he intercedes for us even now? Absolutely. So we see him. We know he's there. We read these stories about him. We know these aren't history in the fact that this man is no longer alive, but he is. He intercedes for us right now at the right hand of the Father. We know that, as he says, he is in the Father, and that we are in him, and he is in us. And we have that assurance. And if you think about it, can an orphan ever have that assurance that his father is always with him? No. That our father is always with us. We know that our Heavenly Father is always with us. We know that his son Jesus is always with us. And so then what does he call us to do? He calls us to keep his commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. Again, he says this He says this several times before we're going to be done with this discourse. And again, just a, just a note here, and we, you should know this by now, but our keeping of the commandments doesn't make him love us less or more. There isn't some kind of standard that we're building up to where we have to, like, build up this stack of commandments in order to reach a certain level of love from Jesus. Thankfully, that's not what's going on. Um, and our love doesn't somehow trigger the love of the Father or anything like that, thankfully. Because what do we read in Scripture? What does Romans 5 tell us? That he loved us when we were what? Enemies. And that we love him. What did First John 4 tell us? We love him because he first loved us. And so there isn't a sense in which our love somehow triggers the Lord's, oh, well, he loves me now so I can love him back. No, that's not how it works, thankfully. It's the other way around. Um, our keeping his commandments is a demonstration of his love for us. His love for us causes our obedience. Remember that passage we just read from Ezekiel 36. His work in our life, life causes us to live and act differently. This is Christ being made manifest in us. That's what he says, you know, that... Um, and he who loves me, um, 
will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does that mean? When we do the works of Christ, we are showing that we are his. His love is being manifested in us. We do his works. We are bearing the fruit of that relationship. He is being made manifest in us. And again, there isn't any sense in which he loves us because of our obedience, and so I don't want you to hear that. We have Christ's perfect obedience as we have been saved. We have his perfect obedience. It is the righteousness of Christ that we have that causes the Lord, the Father, to look favorably on us. And so Judas, not Iscariot, apostles tell us, Judas Iscariot's gone now, questions this. He wants to know what's going on. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What does the word manifest mean? Think about it. How is it that you will show yourself to us where the world can't see you? That doesn't make any sense. It still doesn't make sense to the, to the apostles. And I understand. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is the mark of a believer, is it not? We aren't given the right to judge the state of a man's heart. We can't look into a man's heart and, uh, and see the state of their belief, to see the status of their relationship with God. But the state of a man or woman's heart should be abundantly clear by the actions that they take, by the words that they say. We know, we, uh, we know believers by, how, or by what they do, by how they act the things they talk about, the things that they're passionate about. It should be easy for us to distinguish one another from the world because we are much different than the world. Show me someone who hates the church. Show me someone who refuses to walk in the door of the church because church people are crazy, and I'll show you an unbeliever because believers love the things of God. They want to be around him. They want to talk about him. They want to be with other believers. A believer doesn't hate the people of God. And so Jesus affirms this in the next statement. If there's no love, then there's no obedience. And if there's no obedience, you're not showing any love. And he, sh- and he tells us that here. And again, the Spirit's influence in the life of a believer is there to help him or her in obedience. We obey because the Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is a great uh, chapter to study concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. A very uh, dense, very dense chapter. We're going to take some big chunks here. And so consider what I just said, that we obey because the Spirit makes us more and more like Christ. Well, let's look at Romans verse, or chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. We'll read through this carefully. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. So we see this dichotomy here. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's no gray area here. Paul doesn't really make room for this middle of the fence. Well, sometimes they show obedience, and sometimes uh, they act like they should, and there, there's no gray area. You either hate the Lord, or you love the Lord. You either act as if you have the Spirit, or you don't. <coughs> Continue on, verse 9. You, however, talking about the believer now, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Our own? No. Thankfully, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We have life in Christ because of what the Spirit has done in us. Paul writes about this other places. What does he say? In Christ we are a new creation. The old is gone. The flesh is gone. It is dead. The new is come. Continue on. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you have put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Flesh equals death. Spirit equals life. And how do we know that we have that life? By showing the love that we have to our Father, to His Son Jesus. How do we know we have that in us because we're doing those things. That doesn't mean we're always perfect in doing them. We're not. Paul's going to talk about what he just got through talking about in chapter 7, how he continues to struggle in that idea of the, the war of the flesh versus the spirit within him even then as an apostle. So it's, it's, a, constantly, it's a constant thing that's going on in our bodies. But... The unbeliever doesn't have that war within them at all. And so one evidence that the Spirit is at work within you is you have that struggle. If you don't have that struggle, that's, the, that's not, or you don't have the evidence of the Spirit being within you. That struggle to do what is right, to act as the, the Lord would have you act, to do what he would have you to do, that is evidence of his work in your life. And again, how do we do this? The helper, the advocate, the counselor, what does Jesus say in John 14? Will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Consider this. Think about who's hearing this right there, the disciples. Will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Why is that important for John, the disciple? Well, He's got a lot to remember. Why is that important for Matthew? He's got a lot to remember. He's got to write this stuff down. And the men that they disciple, they will also write stuff down. The Holy Spirit will help them to remember those things as they pen the very word that we study now. And so this is an obvious, direct 
teaching for them. We're sitting right there in the room in a much different way than it is for us. There's no new revelation, so the Spirit's not talking to us to add to the pages of Scripture currently. However, for us, do we still benefit from this continued role of the Spirit today? Absolutely. And He instructs us even now. Why do we pray before we study the Bible, before we hear a sermon, that He would work in our hearts? Because He will do that. He will cause us to remember the things that He has said. He will help us to follow them. We desire that the Spirit would do that which he promised us to do. He will show us what Jesus taught. And just to be clear, Jesus taught everything from Genesis to Revelation. Those are his words. And so he will remind us of all of them. He will help us with it. We need someone who knows it better than we do be our counselor, to be our advocate in regards to the Holy Scripture. And so we call upon him, the writer of all of it. Isn't that fantastic to think? When we pray to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, help me understand what your word's saying. It is his word, and he wrote it down. It's not like he's just learning along with us. That'd be horrible. But it's all his. He understands it perfectly. And so whether, and and think about this too, whether or not we call for him, he's going to be there. But we are simply doing that which Jesus asked us to do, to ask anything, and he will do it. And so Christian, this should be a great comfort for us, that God himself lives in us, he helps us, he guides us, as we wrestle not only with our own sin, but as we wrestle with his word. Especially when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to think. Turn back to Romans 8 with me real quick. I think we all have those moments when we don't know what to say, what to pray, what to think about things. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Up to this point, Paul's been talking about the struggle of sin and that even creation cries out that sin would be over and that that Jesus would come. And what happens here in 26? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the or knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Even when we don't know what to pray for ourselves, even when we don't know what to read, what to do, he is there interceding right now on our behalf. So the second point, and that leads directly into that, the Spirit gives us peace. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We have peace in Christ, but how can we be assured of that? We have the Holy Spirit who brings us peace. If you go to that very next verse that we could have just read in Romans 8, we read 26 and 27. What's 28? It's on every bumper sticker and piece of chocolate and all this other stuff. That he's working all things for together for the good of those who love him. What better peace and comfort is that? Does that mean that he's going to just load us up with material possessions on this earth? No. 
I mean, Christ is telling his disciples this right before he's getting ready to be killed. And they're getting ready to go through this great trial and tribulation. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be good as far as we see it on earth. But that does mean that everything is going to be right and good as far as the Lord's concerned. So what does he say to his disciples? Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. It's much easier to bear that knowing that when Jesus is gone from the earth, there will be one who can intercede and act on his behalf. The peace that Jesus speaks of doesn't, isn't an absence of conflict. I think a lot of times when we think of peace concerning Scripture, we're thinking that we're not going to have any conflict, that when we really experience the peace of Christ, we're going to be able to kind of float through the air. All right? That's not what this means. The early church wasn't without conflict at all. They were killed for their belief. They were persecuted for several hundred years after Christ died on and off. And so the peace that Christ speaks of is the kind that you can have even in the midst of conflict. What would they say to one another in the Hebrew culture? You guys know this. Shalom. That means peace. It embodies peace. And it basically says, all is well. Not in the earthly sense that everything or nothing is wrong, because a lot of times when we think, well, all is well means nothing is wrong. Well, that's not necessarily this, the way this is meaning. But in the eternal sense, we know that no matter what happens here, we have security. I want to read for you a couple of stanzas of this hymn, and I hope I have it with me. It was written in the 1800s by uh, uh, a lady, I can't remember her last name, first name was Mary, but she writes this hymn, and I love this, the words of this hymn. She says, Though the love, or through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is his favor. All will be well. Precious is the blood that healed us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched out to shield us. All will be well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a strong such a full salvation, all is well. Happy still in God confiding, fruitful if in Christ abiding. Holy through the Spirit's guiding, all must be well. We don't write hymns like that anymore. Because we're convinced, 150 years later after that one was written, that the only way that we can have peace is if everything is in order around us. But the peace that Christ would give us has something to do with eternity and very little to do with what we experience now. Sure, we're going to experience that now, but we're also going to experience times of conflict as we have Christ even now. And that doesn't mean that he's looked away. That doesn't mean that he no longer likes us. That doesn't mean that we have to turn up our obedience quotient for the month so we can somehow reach his love. No, he doesn't stop loving us just because crazy things are going on. The peace that he gives us is the peace that is for all eternity. Remembering that everything that happens is all part of God's plan. You know, it's a common colloquialism in Christianity to say, well, God has a good plan for your life. Yes, he does. 
all of his plans are good. I may not think that it's very good this side of heaven, whatever he's got planned for me, but God doesn't ever look at something that he's about to do and say, it's really not a good idea. He, it's always good. It's always right. All the things work together for our good, even when I think it's not all that good. It is good, and we should have peace because it is God's plan. God in us, God with us, even now, to intercede on our behalf, to show us, when I don't understand what's going on, I have one with me, in me, who does, all the time, get it, and is able to pray for me even in words I don't understand, what Paul said. I mean, consider what Jesus is about to face. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. I love this phrase, but it often gets kind of turned on its head, sadly. Jesus warns them that the ruler of the world is coming. Who is the ruler of the world? The ruler of the world is the evil one, Satan. But that doesn't mean that he's somehow the ruler of the world and and. Jesus is the ruler of heaven, and they're somehow like clashing heads, and we are the deciding factor, the deciding vote. Uh, none of that garbage. Um, but can, but hang on to this fact that he is the ruler of the world. That means that he is ruling people. That means that there are people that are his. And who are those people? Everyone who doesn't follow Christ. People who don't follow Christ are not autonomous, as they might think they are. They follow another leader whether they want to or not. That's the leader of this world, Satan. But consider Satan. He's a mere pawn in God's plan. He's a powerful one. So I'm not stripping him of his power, but he's not somehow at odds and at equal with God. He only does God's bidding at the end of the day. And he's coming, yes, he is, in the person of Judas, to lead the soldiers to arrest our Lord and Savior. He is coming. But what does Jesus say? He has no claim on me. Again, this shouldn't be a cause for alarm. Why is Jesus going to his death? Because the Father called him to do so. Because he loves his people that he came to die for. Not because he's somehow been thwarted by the evil one. But he's doing that which the Father told him to do. And that which he wanted to do himself. And there are going to be times that we're going to go through tribulations and trials. Nothing like Jesus is going through, but for us it's going to seem like that because we're just mortal. We don't, you know, we have a hard time seeing the other side of the fence sometimes. But brothers and sisters, we don't do it alone. We have an advocate. And our advocate is the very third person of the Godhead. Here, in, and among us. Directing us. Guiding us even thankfully causing us to do as we ought. He gives us the words to pray. He opens his word to us that we might learn and remember and listen. He brings us together that we might not walk alone physically on this earth, but that we have one another, that we might have comfort and security and the discipline that the church brings for us, and that's a good thing. But most of all, what does he bring for us? Peace, and that peace passes all understanding as we look forward to the day when we'll be able to see the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, face to face.
But until that day, while we wait, we have the great comforter, counselor, and helper, the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, let us live in such a way to let the world know that the very Spirit of God dwells within us, His people. Let them see the way that we act. Let them see the things that we say. Do we demonstrate our love for the Savior by how we obey Him? Consider that. Do we show a lost world the love for a Savior by the way that we love one another? As Jesus said earlier. What's the answer? We know the answer to that. Sometimes we do those things. We're getting better. Thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ died even while we were still His enemies. That we might have the blessings of the new covenant, the promised Holy Spirit. So let us live in a manner worthy of our calling and this blessing that we've been given. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us as you helped your disciples there, as you calmed them, as you comforted them, as only you can. You promised them your spirit, and they waited and they received. We have the spirit right now among us, even interceding on our behalf right now. And so, Lord, help us to live as if that's true. Help us to live and to know that truth and to live our day-to-day that way so that the world may know and hear and believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.